about a month ago, maybe a little longer, one of our daughters, Avery, got sick. And uh, she said her, her throat hurt quite bad. And so she was miserable and we decided to take her to the doctor. And sure enough, they treated her and, and said she had strep throat. So good to find out a prognosis, come home. They also had a prescription and I went to get the prescription to come back to give it to her. And now usually you gotta understand for our kids and maybe your kids this way, anytime we give them medicine, it's like candy for them. They want it over and over and over. So we have to be careful not to over drug our kids. But this particular medicine tasted horrible. Uh, Avery, as soon as she put it in her mouth, would just gag reflex. And so we had to coax her into taking this three times a day. Uh, and we did this not to torture her. And we did this because we knew it would make things better. And she asked, you know, why does this medicine taste so bad? The others don't taste nearly this bad. But as her father, you know, as her parent, we, we, we knew that she would only get better by, by drinking this, by, by taking this. Have you ever tasted or had to take medicine that tasted horrible and you, you knew it was coming? Like you knew it was going to be bad and you had to prepare yourself and in, in, in trembling at the thought of how, how you expected your, your stomach to curdle or, or the response in that. It just it bothered you. Our passage this morning in John 18 ends with a statement in verse 11 concerning Jesus and the cup. Jesus knew it would be horrible. But the only way for things to get better is for them to get worse. And a section in the Gospel of John, John 18, doesn't go into as much detail as with the conversation between Jesus and his father in the garden. But we'll see the resolve of Jesus to take the cup because he knows it'll make things better for his people. And in that, you see the supremacy of, of Christ. So if you haven't already, turn to John chapter 18 and follow with me as I read just the first 11 verses. John 18, starting in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word they had spoken of these whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This morning we begin the journey, John 18, through the rest of the book of Jesus to be crucified. 
And I'm well aware that last week we celebrated the resurrection. And uh, what a glorious day it was to remember again. And we're going backwards, back into the story. And, and we're gonna be here for a number of weeks. And so I encourage you as we go back into the story concerning his arrest and his trial and his crucifixion to, to stick with us. We'll make it to the best part again in John chapter 20. And when, maybe we'll have second Easter. I, I know the kids will be excited for that, right? Go buy this kind of candy now. We'll have second Easter as we get to John 20. This morning, we're going to look at the first 11 verses of, of John chapter 18, and I want you to notice the supremacy of Christ in this, and the supremacy of Christ in, in the place, the place that was chosen, the supremacy of Christ in the, in the people, people involved in this, and third, the supremacy of Christ in the plans. So the place, the people, and the plans. And so as we, we launch in this, would you join me in prayer and, and as we look at God's word together? God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the, the time we've had to worship you and, and the songs and the music that, that ministered to us and, and allowed us to join together as a body to sing to you. And now, Father, as we worship you through the preaching of your word, may you be honored and glorified and may you speak through me. Teach your people this morning. I ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. First, the, the supremacy of Christ in the place. This, this chapter leads us to the cross, to continuing the story of, of collusion, of secret agreements, of betrayal, of convincing and conspiring to kill. It's a story of disloyalty, of abandonment. It's a story of how the Jewish leaders of the day give up their pretense of devotion and service to God by, by scheming to murder Jesus. All the events in this chapter take place during the, the Thursday night of the closing week of Jesus' life here on earth. I've broken down the chapter into three major scenes that will, Lord willing, cover the next three weeks. This, this week is the, the opening scene, the betrayal and arrest of Jesus in verses one through 11. And it moves into the second scene, the denial of Peter and the inter interrogation of Jesus in verses 12 through 27. And then it ends with the, the, the concluding section, the trial of Jesus before Pilate in verses 28 through 40. And John chapter 18 leads us to the cross. Before we get to the cross, Jesus takes us to the garden. Look again at verse one. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. If you were able to read through the, the, the end of the Gospel of John in the last few weeks, you quickly realize that John's account of Jesus' final hours is much different than the other three Gospel accounts. In Matthew's account, we can read of this prayer. John doesn't mention it here, but I wanted to read it for you. In Matthew's gospel, chapter 26, verses 36 through 46. This is what Matthew writes. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with them Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter in temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. 
And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, and he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. John doesn't include this prayer of Jesus in the garden like the other gospel accounts, because I believe John wants to keep our focus on Jesus' glory. And John gives us the clue that they enter the garden, the disciples are with them. He doesn't give us the name of the garden, but through the other gospels we find out the name. And, and right away, we begin to see the importance for this scene that it's set in a garden. If you remember, humans are in the dilemma of sin because of the actions of another garden. The Garden of Eden. Two gardens, two men, Adam and Jesus. Eden was delightful. Gethsemane was terrible. Eden was during the day, Gethsemane was at night. Eden was where the race was lost, and Gethsemane was where the race was bought. In Eden, Adam talked with Satan. But in Gethsemane, Jesus talked with God. In Eden, Adam sinned in the, in the garden. And in Gethsemane, Jesus submitted in the garden. In Eden, Adam took the fruit from the garden. In Gethsemane, Jesus took the cup. Adam fell in sin in the garden. And Jesus began the process of taking sin on himself in Gethsemane. Pastor James Montgomery Boyce writes of this. He says, Adam and Eve, by their sin, plunged the race into misery. They fell and carried their descendants over the cliff of sin into destruction. Christ, on the other hand, stood firm. He did not sin, nor did he shrink from his work. And as a result, he saved all whom the Father had given him. And Adam, all were lost. And Christ could say, those you gave me, I have kept none of them lost. Jesus enters the Garden of Gethsemane to begin the reverse of what happened in the Garden of Eden. He continues, and John writes, Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. In verse 3, So Judas, have, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And we see here Judas re-entering the scene. If you remember, we last heard of him in chapter 13 when Jesus was instituting the Lord's Supper and in that time, he outs Judas, right? He shares with everyone that he is going to betray him. And if you remember, at the end of that, Jesus turns to Judas and says to him, what, what you're going to do, do quickly. And Judas leaves right away and the dominoes begin to fall so that God's plan of redemption would happen just as he had planned. It looks as though that, that Judas left the dinner straight away and went to find the Jewish leaders. And he comes to the garden now, as John says, because he knows the place. Jesus is even sovereign in, in the place of the betrayal of heaven. He had visited there multiple times, John says. He, he knows the place. He, he, he leads Judas to the place by, by visiting there frequently before. And Judas comes with a band of soldiers and some officers, he says. 
John writes a, in another version, a cohort of men. Now, a number of commentaries tell us that a band of soldiers or a cohort could be up to 600 men, but it's unclear if the entire group would have been available at this time of night. It's likely that there was a section of those men that followed him after arrest to arrest Jesus, somewhere upwards of 100 to 200 men. I found that shocking. Jesus, Judas brings the muscle. And look out, what else did he bring? They, they, they come with lanterns and torches and weapons. And the soldiers bring light to bring the light of the world. They, they bring weapons to secure the Lamb of God. Now, why would there need to be a group of soldiers as large as 100 or 200 men to, to come and arrest Jesus? I mean, even if they intended to arrest all 11, which it seems as though they are, why bring so many? And the combination of the men brought is interesting also. John writes, so Judas having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. And this, this indicates really that the whole world is guilty in the rest, Jew and Gentile alike. And sometimes common foes generate strange friendships. Why so many? I believe they are fearful of the power of Jesus. They're fearful of the power of influence. You know, if we go backwards in the Gospel of John to chapter 10, we see Jesus again preaching to a large Jewish crowd, and this is the passage where he identifies himself as the good shepherd and calls out the, the Jews surrounded for not worshiping God. And what's the response? Are they humbled? No, they're angry. They, they, they move to, to kill him. They want to stone him. And Jesus and his men escape and they cross over the Jordan. And then we come to chapter 11. What happens in chapter 11? As Jesus is away, he, he hears word that his friend Lazarus is sick, sick into death. And what does Jesus do? He waits. He waits a few days and then he crosses over against the Advice of his own men, Jesus, if you go back, they're going to kill you. But he goes back anyways, and what does Jesus do in chapter 11? Lazarus is long gone. He's dead, his body is decaying in the tomb, and what does Jesus do? He raises him from the dead in front of a crowd. He showcases his power for all to see. And the response at the end of that chapter is they're plotting to kill Jesus. And then we come to chapter 12, and this is the triumphal entry into the city, and the crowds long for their Redeemer, and they cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And the leaders, well, they don't respond well to this either. All of these events lead us to chapter 18. So, so now we understand they're fearful. The crowds have cried out. The people have seen his power. They need to snuff him out. And they bring the muscle. Bring a few hundred men to, to take care of this guy. They bring their torches, their lanterns. They want to light up this garden at night. They want to they see him. They bring their weapons. They're not going to take any chances. They believe they're going to have to search out Jesus. They're going to have to, to scour the garden to find him, that he's probably hiding, that he's, he's ready to defend himself, and the 11 are all there. That's not what happens. Jesus knows they're coming. 
and he's just finished his time in prayer with the Father. He knows what must be done. And Jesus submits to the plan of his Father. So we've seen the supremacy of Christ in the place. The second thing I want you to see is the supremacy of Christ in the people. We come to verse four and we realize fully who's in control of the situation. And the other gospels give us more details and, and places more weight on Judas as the one who identified Jesus with a kiss, and I believe it happened, but with the darkness of night and the need for lanterns and torches, Jesus, and John tells us, comes forth to identify himself as the one they're looking for. Look again with me in verse four. And then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, who do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. When the supremacy of Christ is displayed in these events, Jesus, knowing full well what was about to happen, wastes no opportunity to show these men and these soldiers who's, who's in control here. And Jesus displays for us right here of what godly leadership looks like. He doesn't cower in the corner waiting for someone else to make the first move. He doesn't hesitate hoping that someone else will take the initiative. No, he steps up knowing that these men are not the ones in control, but God is in control. This is what leadership looks like. The willingness to step out in faith when no one else is willing. And you see from the other 11, and you'll see through the rest of the gospel, that they would rather this wouldn't happen. They wanted the path of least resistance. They wanted a way where they could have their cake and eat it too. And this is a distinguishing mark between leaders and followers. Jesus knows. He knows he needs to lead, and he steps forward. And we read in in Matthew's passage of Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane, we read that earlier, but in Luke's gospel, we can see the trauma. The trauma that Jesus experienced prior to the stepping forward. In Luke's gospel, he writes, And he came out and went as was accustomed to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus such agony before the Father. Sweats drops of blood. It's actually a known condition. Where in the midst of extreme anguish and physical strain, it can, can cause one's capillary blood vessels to dilate and burst, mixing sweat and blood. This wasn't easy for Jesus. You know, in, in that scene in Luke's gospel, you see the humanity of Jesus. And in Luke's main purpose in that is to highlight the intensity of Jesus' emotional and physical trauma. In church, Jesus always had the cross on his mind. 
And he doesn't forget the men in the process. He knows that they will take the mantle on their shoulders when he dies. And they would need to learn, to learn what it means to lead and to lead this church into fruition. And Jesus steps out and displays for them that leaders lead. They take the initiative. They stick their necks out to follow God, to be obedient. And they're willing to be hurt in the process so as to honor God with their leadership. And Jesus is going to lead these men on the journey of their lives. So Jesus steps forward and asks the question, whom do you seek? You can see the confidence in Jesus. He knows the answer. And you might think that an unarmed victim might want to flee, but Jesus is no victim in this situation. And they answered in verse 5, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. This is John's way of indicating that Judas is still very much a part of this betrayal of Jesus and the turning of him him over to the leadership. And in verse 6, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, if you read this, and a few of you did, you commented to me on Facebook and found this fascinating. It is fascinating. Jesus asked them who, who they're looking for, and they respond with their search for Jesus of Nazareth. And he steps up to tell them that they, that, that they found him. It's, it's him. Now, John has something interesting. The soldiers draw back and fall. Well, first I want to mention, Jesus says, I am. The word he is not in the original Greek. And we've seen this response from Jesus throughout John's gospel. And every time it's a signal to his divinity that he is God. And the last time that Jesus publicly identified himself as God, using that statement was in chapter 10, and the response was one of anger. Jesus says, ego emiai, I am. And our minds, mine at least, automatically are thrown back to Exodus. When Moses is talking with God, he says, I am who I am. This is Jesus. This is Jesus declaring that he's no mere man. He's divine. I am the bread of life, he said. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the true vine. I am the door. Jesus is saying in all that I am God. And the men, armed, ready, weaponized to seize this man, are hurled back on their heels and fall to the ground. Well, you notice it doesn't say that you just fell to the ground, but they drew back and fell to the ground. A few commentaries I read this week said that maybe it was just a few of the soldiers. Maybe, maybe they had just lost their footing. Maybe they were so startled by the bold statement of Jesus, it just took them back. No, I don't buy it Not for a second. Alexander McLaren, in his commentary, writes, There was for a moment a little rending of the veil of his flesh, an emission of some flash of the brightness that always tabernacled with him, and that therefore, just as Isaiah, when he saw the king in his glory, said, Woe is me, for I am undone. And just as Moses cannot look upon the face, but can only see the back parts, so here the the one stray beam of manifest divinity that shot through the crevice, as it were, for an instant, was enough to prostrate with a strange awe, even those rude and insensitive men. When he said, I am, there was something that made them feel, this is the one before whom the violence cowers abashed and whose pretense and purity has to hide its face. Hearing the words of Christ and understanding who he was 
caused those simple men to, to step back and to fall at the supremacy of Christ. Something blew them off their feet. You know, they didn't prostrate themselves before him and, and say they're astounded or amazed. That's not what happened. They would have gone forward, though. They, they went back. They were blown back. And the voice of God revealed the glory of God to those men. And their weak knees couldn't handle it. And John, again, shows us the, the supremacy of Christ and the power of God. If the, the mere voice of Jesus can drive the men to the ground, who will really win on the cross? Is God really going to let them win? Ugh. Christ is going to submit himself to the Father's plan. And friends that are here this morning and do not know Jesus, you do not have a relationship with him, this this verse should cause you to pause. If the very voice of Christ causes them to fall back in fear, realize that if you never bow the knee to God in this life, you will bow the knee to him in judgment. Another commentary wrote, the knee that would not bow to him in voluntary affection will at length be constrained to do so by the horrors of despair. You know, to me, as, a, as someone who's desiring to serve God, who loves him and is saved by him, I'm comforted by this. But if you have not, and you're here this morning, and you're not trusting the one who can cause men to fall back by his mere words, then this scene should cause you to be distraught. And I'm praying that you will bow the knee to Christ this morning and trust in him alone for salvation. And friend, when you trust in Christ, know that he will keep you. You know, verse nine, again, another evidence of the security of God, of those whom you gave me, I have, I have lost not one. Even in the physical sense here in this scene, but in the spiritual sense, God keeps those whom he saves. John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. The Father saves and the Father keeps. And so we've seen the supremacy of Christ in the place and in the people and third, supremacy of Christ in the plans. The section closes with a dramatic scene as the soldier approaches now to secure Jesus. Verse 10, and Simon Peter having a sword drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name is Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Peter, Peter, Peter. Right, he's always at the center of foolishness. It's very curious why Peter would even lash out in this way to cut off his ear. It was just moments earlier that Jesus brought him into the garden and told him to pray so that what? He would resist temptation, like striking a man. And what was he found doing? You can answer. Unless you're sleeping, you can answer. He was sleeping. He didn't obey. He, 
He didn't resist temptation. You know, after that, multiple times, the one gospel account, three times he comes, and, and I thought, you know, isn't this the picture of Christianity right now? Instead of praying to resist temptation, we're sleeping. And here's Peter disregarding Jesus' commands in his life and taking charge in his own terms. And he charges at one of the servants and cuffs off, cut off his right ear. And here we see the immaturity of Peter taking things into his own hands. He thinks violence will solve the issue. And, and through this, you, you, you see that he truly doesn't understand what Jesus is about to do. And if you remember, he was also informed that that evening, after his declaration that he would do anything for Jesus, Jesus says, no, actually, you're going to deny me three times. And you know that's trailing with him. So it makes sense to us as humans that Peter leaps into action to save his friend, to cut off the ear of Malchus. He wants to prove his loyalty to Jesus. But he fails. And I thought, why, why does John include the name of the, the man who lost his ear? I don't know. My answer was simply because it proves the credibility of this account. If you're reading this at that time, go find Malchus. He's not going to have a missing ear. The other gospel accounts said Jesus healed him right away. But go find Malchus. He'll tell you what happened. What can we learn from Peter here? Well, simply, are we looking to redirect the plan of God? Do we trust his sovereignty or do we trust our plan? What would you have wanted? Now, where we sit in 2017, what would you have wanted? Would you have wanted Peter to be successful? Freeing Jesus and then escaping, running from the law, looking to live off the land. Stay alive as long as you can, Jesus. Is this what we want? Or do we want Jesus submitting to the authorities? Knowing that through this trauma, he would be securing for us salvation. Jesus is not pleased with Peter. And he responds, Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus turns and tells him to put away his sword, most likely a dagger. Put it away, Peter. Another gospel account, and Matthew's gone, he says, I could have called down 12 legions of angels. I could have done this. I could have taken care of it. I don't need your muscle, Peter. And why is he saying this? Well, in John's gospel, he says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? You know, in that short phrase, you have something very amazing. The cup of the Father. Did you notice that? The cup of the Father. You have the combination of two terms that our modern society do believe that they don't go together. They don't mesh. Cup of the Father. Cup means wrath, plain and simple. In ancient times, sometimes they would execute criminals by giving them a cup of poison. They say this is how Socrates died. He was given a cup of poison to die. They would give a, 
a cup of poison and it would speed up death. And this is why in the Old Testament, God's wrath, his justice against evil, against injustice is depicted in blood-curdling ways as the cup. The metaphor is a cup of poison. In Ezekiel 23, it says, you shall drink the cup of his wrath, of ruin and desolation, and he will tear your breast. You know, the, the person who drinks the poison, they stagger and their insides are burning up. In Isaiah 54, it says, you will drink the cup as a, of his anger and you will stagger. And it's a startling statement of the fact that God is angry against sin. He is warranted wrath against our unwarranted wrath. And he says, this cup is the Father's cup. It doesn't say the cup of God, but the cup of the Father. What does Father mean? What does Jesus mean when he references God as his Father? He's talking about love. He's talking about affection. He's talking about patience. He's, he's using the word in the Greek, Papa. The kids use to their dad of an endearment, father. The father's cup. And this world runs away from the fact that these two things could ever go together. If he is a real loving father, then there shouldn't ever be a cup. If there's a cup, then he's really not a loving father. They say it doesn't mesh. And here Jesus brings them together. He says that he's both. When he informs Peter of this, he's alluding to what will happen on the cross. On the cross, he drank the cup of the Father. And friends, if you don't believe this, then your life cannot be changed. And I've had many people over the years, when I share the gospel with them, they respond, I don't, I don't believe in a God of judgment. I don't believe in a God who sends people to hell. I don't believe in a God of wrath. I don't believe that God's wrath is on all of us. I believe that he loves everyone. Who, want a, who would want a God of wrath, they say. And sometimes I've asked, do you believe in Jesus? And very often they respond, yes, yes I do. And then I ask, why did Jesus come and die on the cross. And usually the response is to say, to show God's love. But think about that. Is that why Jesus died on the cross? Dr. Richard Nickel, a professor at Gordon Seminary, used to share a story with his class. He would say, what if you and I, or you and a friend, let's say, were standing side by side watching a bonfire? And all of, a friend, all of a sudden, your friend uh, turns to you and says, let me show you how much I love you. And he jumps in the fire and he dies. Would you say, wow, he really loved me? Or would you say, what is he on? Is he drunk? You wouldn't, you wouldn't see love. You would be disturbed. But if you're standing with that same friend in front of a burning house and your child is in that house and the same friend rushes into the house and saves your child and in the attempt he dies, you say, he really loved us. Don't you realize 
if Jesus Christ dies, if he gives his life on the cross, and we're not in any sort of trouble, and we don't have the wrath of God on us, and we're not on our way to an eternity without God, and we're not lost, then his death isn't a sign of love. It's outrageous, it's wicked, it's just plain crazy. It makes no sense. Jesus didn't die on the cross just because he, he loved. No, he took the wrath of God for us. And on the cross, he cries out, Father, forgive them. And on the cross at the end, he cries out, it is finished. What, what is finished, Jesus? Jesus took that cup of God's wrath and drank it all and finished it. He was drinking the cup of the Father. And the cross shows us that God can love us and can be just at the same time. The cup of the Father means he's equally just and equally loving. And you only see the magnitude of Jesus' love for you when you realize that he drank the cup of God's wrath for you. And listen, friend, if you just say, I, I just believe in a God who loves everybody, then you have stripped away the significance of the cross. And you have further condemned yourself. If you look at Jesus on the cross and your only thought is that he loved me, then how will that ever change you? But if you believe that you deserve the full wrath of God for your wicked sins of lying and cheating and swearing and stealing, and you know you've done those sins, and then you look at Jesus as he's suffering, as he's having nails driven into his hands and into his feet and a, a crown of thorns shoved into his skull, and you realize that he's doing this to take the cup of wrath that you deserve, you will forever be changed. Until you believe and understand the wrath of God, you will never understand the love of God. At least not at this magnitude, you will never have your heart changed. You know, it's the same in raising kids. If you choose to just raise your kids without ever laying down the law for sins, if they, if they live in your house with no rules, no discipline, just love, you will ruin that child. And they will, they will never understand what love truly is because when they grow older and their, their life is unruly, they will come to you and say, why did you do this? Only through understanding the wrath of God and then Jesus' sacrifice for us on the cross do we understand fully the love of God. And Jesus confronts Peter and he confronts me. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Christ is in complete submission to the Father and in complete control of what's about to happen. And you hear and you see the sovereignty of God in his response to this erring disciple. And as we look back at the sacrifice of Jesus, we look with eyes that are thankful that Jesus accomplished what we couldn't on that cross. Who are you in this picture? Are you the disciple that everyone thinks is good in the right life? Remember, at this point, Judas approaches the scene and everyone assumes that he's one of them. You're following Jesus, you're showing your dedication to him, willing to serve him, but really underneath, 
You don't have a relationship with Jesus at all. In fact, if given the opportunity, you would betray him just like Judas. It's not because you have lost interest in Jesus. You never had any interest in him to begin with. You were an imposter. You believed a different gospel, the gospel of self. Or are you the other disciple, excited to give God everything? You, you, you know him, you love him, you want to serve him, you want to follow him, but you want to do it on your own terms. You're ready to give your life for God, but only if things work out in the way that, that you think they should. You, you lack the desire to submit to his leadership in your life. Instead, you're going to pave your own path, serve God the way you feel it should happen. You're, you're like Peter, willing to redirect the plan of God for your own purposes. Who are you in this story? Years and years and years ago, many years ago, God placed a man in a garden and he put a tree in front of him. And he said to the man, obey me concerning this tree. Don't eat the fruit of this tree. You can eat the fruit of every other tree in the garden, but not the fruit of this tree. And he said to Adam, if you obey me, you will live. And Adam didn't obey. And centuries later, God placed another man in a garden. And he placed a tree in front of him. And he said, obey me concerning this tree. But friends, realize it's a different tree. It's a cross. To the first Adam, God said, if you just obey me, you can live. And he didn't. But to the second Adam, Jesus, God's son, God said, son, obey me and I'll crush you. Go to the cross and I'll punish you for them. And he did. And Jesus went to the tree and he drank the cup of God's wrath because the first man refused to obey. And it's only at the cross do we see the justice of God and the love of God perfectly coincide. No place in all of history of this world was the holiness of God more brilliantly manifested when when Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath due our sins on the cross. And through this, we truly see the love of God for us. Let's pray. God, I am humbled this morning by remembering again all that you've done for us. Humbled by your perfect love for us. Humbled by the length of love that you would go to to take away our sins. And God, I pray for those that are seated here this morning, either visiting for the first time or have been here many weeks, and they have never bowed the knee to you. They have never submitted their lives to you. God, maybe their kids here, growing up in church, attending loving the, the, the church, loving being a part of the church, attending Sunday school and Awana and so involved, but yet they have never personally 
recognize their own sin and realize that you, you took that in the form of a cup, the wrath due their sin. And you took that cup, Jesus, and you drank it all. And you died for them. And God, I pray that they would realize this this morning. That they would repent and submit themselves unto you and trust in you for salvation. And I ask that you would save them. And for those, God, of us that are saved, reminded again this morning of the infinite price that you paid for us on that cross. God, thank you. We will be saying thank you for all of eternity. Thank you for saving us, for redeeming us, for changing us, for giving us hope. Father, help us to leave this place in a way that honors and glorifies you. That we will take this, this good news that Christ took the wrath of God upon himself to save us, that we would go and boldly share that with those we come in contact with. Help us not to cower back. Help us to lead in that way. And now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.